You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Busy day today, Kyla. Lots to do. You have no idea. <laughs> and I got caught in that, like, major highway closure yesterday trying to get to court. Yeah, I want to know what happened with that. I don't know. I haven't seen anything in the news. I'm very curious. Well, I was frantically texting police officers and all sorts of other people, phoning people <laughs> to try to find somebody. What really shocked me was I called the registry. And I said, look, we, you know, we have to do something. Somebody, they can call me, they can call Kyla. We need to adjourn it, stand it down. They were like, no, all we can do is it'll be a deemed conviction. And then you can apply to have the deemed <laughs> conviction reversed. I'm like, whoa, that's not satisfactory. Why do we have a process for people to submit telephone appearance requests, if not for those rare occasions when an emergency arises? I know. And, and why not just like pass the message on we're in court there all the time it's not like it's a self-represented person who's uh, you know come trying to avoid it we all know that this is taking place anyway yeah anyway um so (laughs) it's gonna be a bit of a disappointment podcast today paul because there are two cases that are disappointments that i wanted to talk about the first is a case uh and sadly i will admit i argued it unsuccessfully um, about collateral consequences in traffic ticket convictions. Um, it's a case of uh, Zhang, um, and it involves an individual who was uh, applying to uh, take back their guilty plea because they didn't realize that an offense they'd pled guilty to in traffic court carried with it points. Okay. And uh, the court had to consider whether or not points are truly a collateral consequence to a traffic ticket because of course if there's a collateral consequence um then you for your plea to be free and voluntary and informed it has to be informed not just to the actual legal consequences but also the collateral legal consequences i had no idea this was happening i had no idea that you appealed this this is news to me well i and apparently you lost and i lost you should have come to me first i would have said what would you have said i would have said that they the fine is the one clear consequence on it. And I don't right. see how that can be a collateral consequence. But the points happen by operation of regulation. Oh, it's the points. I thought it was the, the yeah. Well, yeah. the points are, yeah, again, once again, I think most people know that many offenses have points and you know beforehand yeah. you can research that and make that decision. Well, this is essentially what the court said. So the, the case law in BC was really divided on this. Um, there was a case uh, in um, BC Supreme Court, uh, the, from the Court of Appeal, rather, um, called Miller, where the Court of Appeal said, yeah, penalty points um, uh, are not something that a person has to be aware of um, for their plea to be free, voluntary, and informed. But this case was from 2010. And then, of course, the Supreme Court of Canada decided the case of Wong, um, where they said that the consequences associated with a um, uh, associated with a plea that go outside the direct consequences of the plea, the collateral consequences do have to be understood by a person when they're pleading guilty. And Wong came in 2018, so Wong, on its face, seems to overtake, although not expressly, the Court of Appeals decision 
in the earlier case from 2010. There are cases also that came after Wong that the court considered. So one is a case we talked about a few years ago on the podcast called Sherman. It was Justice Brendrett. Um, and Mr. Sherman got um, tickets, three tickets, while he was driving his mother's car, do you remember? And he told, he had a conversation with the officer about the tickets, and the officer said they wouldn't have points. And turns out they did, and he relied on that and paid the tickets, and then he was trying to take back his guilty plea made by paying the tickets. What happened in the Sherman case? I don't remember now. In Sherman, um, the judge could not resolve conflicting evidence. The officer had said he did tell him it had points. The judge couldn't resolve the conflicting evidence about whether demerit points were uh, discussed, accepted that it could have been the case that regardless of what the officer actually said, he came away from the conversation with the wrong understanding as to the consequences of his guilty plea. He had no legal advice. He was only 18 years old. He had just gotten his license. It was his first traffic ticket. And so the court said, yeah, the plea was not properly informed, so he should get a new trial. Interesting. Did uh, But was there a different collateral consequence in that one? I think he had a driving prohibition, which was a collateral consequence. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, now, the court, the Crown, when I argued the Zang case, relied on a number of cases out of Ontario where, I know, Ontario, like, please don't import Ontario driving law into B.C. driving law. Uh, let's just, let's just put off hard big border wall from Ontario law coming in on this. And there's a ton of cases in Ontario. Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan law will accept, and even things from Manitoba. Yeah, Saskatchewan, you're okay. Um, <laughs> Alberta sometimes. Um, so in Ontario, all of the case law has seemed to consistently hold that demerit points um, are uh, direct consequences of tickets that drivers have an obligation to research, like you're saying. You can research it. You oh can God. figure it out. I agree with someone from Ontario. I know. You you get off my podcast. <laughs> and uh, Next thing you know, I'll be growing a mustache. And insurance consequences, including license suspensions, are not legally relevant collateral consequences. But, of course, Ontario, very different. And the judge does accept that the Ontario case law is different than the BC case law, because in Ontario, we don't have they don't have like the, the statutory insurance scheme and the same you know regulatory scheme set up for the imposition of driving prohibitions and, and insurance consequences that we do in British Columbia. So the court does accept that um, the Ontario uh, cases are to be given little weight because of the important contextual differences between the Ontario and BC insurance schemes. So thank God for that. Yes. <laughs> There's one silver lining in this case. Uh, it is that Ontario is not trickling in in that respect, at least. And the judge, well, rejecting Mr. Zhang uh, as having legally relevant collateral consequences in this case does not fully close the door on it. I, I, yeah, I'm having trouble reconciling this with the earlier case. Yeah, so, and, and she does. She takes the factual matrix in Sherman and says this is distinguishable in very important respects. Um, although Mr. Zhang was self-represented, he didn't have the same vulnerabilities that Mr. Sherman had. He was older, 
Um, he had previous experience with the violation ticket system. If his driving record was evidence um, in the application, and it sh- it showed um, that he'd had multiple tickets previously. Um, he'd had previous convictions for tickets that had points. He'd had previous uh, driving prohibitions. And um, there was also no evidence that his uh, determination that the um, that the ticket carried no points was not provided or corroborated by the officer, right? He was there at court. He had somebody translating for him. The officer didn't say, I told him that it had no points or I, I, I told we had a conversation about points at all. And there was no evidence that he was inadvertently misled as a result of like a confusing conversation due to his inexperience. So being young and stupid, basically, is the way that he gets out. And usually, you know, being young, you're you're prejudiced against by the police. But I guess when you go to court, it's discrimination against the... Young and stupid is your friend. uh, Yeah, it's discrimination against those who are not young and stupid. Exactly. That's pretty much it. So the door is not closed. And uh, the court says that um, ultimately, uh, in that case, in in um, the uh, that case, there was no sort of inadvertent misleading or any problem uh, that led to Mr. Zhang not understanding. It's just he chose not to educate himself before pleading guilty. And therefore, there was no miscarriage of justice in his case. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you lost. Um, the one thing I would say is that, uh, I am in discussion groups with other lawyers and a lot of people are lamenting losses right now. And that's an unfortunate thing. When, uh, I remember years ago, Evie, a lawyer who, uh, had summered in our office before he became a lawyer, older guy, uh, was telling me that, um, you know, he loses most trials, but he wins applications here and there, and he gets fairly good results ultimately when it comes time for sentencing. Uh, but that, you know, some days, um, he's consoling other lawyers for losing and, you know, the crown lays charges and the crown defends these things because they believe that they can succeed. And in the end, it always feels a little bit like they get a, uh, 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 somewhat of an advantage because they're the ones who wrote the law. And so the interpreting of it seems to be um, in the favor of the government, generally speaking. So don't beat yourself up over it, Kyla. The important thing is you go and fight these things. There's clarity in the law for us, and it'll help us with the next uh, the next time we have to do a... I can think of a few things, but I'm not going to list all the different types of things that we do. It will. Now, um... I have another disappointment for you, Paul. Oh my gosh! Yeah, this is the case of Doiron. I don't know how to pronounce Doiron. I don't know how you say it. D O I R O N. It's a decision of Justice Crossan uh, from the BC Supreme Court, and it is the first case that I'm aware of in BC to interpret the Bro decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. That's the decision. Yeah. And it's a loser. And it's a loser. And it's a friend of ours is a, the lawyer on it. Well, we won't name him because he's a friend. No, that's a point. But... Um, but it is distinguishable, I think, from most circumstances. So what happens here? So in this case, um, Constable Cataret, Whistler RCMP, uh, pulls over Mr. Doiron for not wearing a seatbelt, has a conversation with him, detects an odor of liquor, some other symptoms of alcohol consumption. He makes an admission. So Constable Cataret forms a reasonable suspicion, 
asks him to step out of the vehicle for the purposes of an ASD test, calls for backup to come to the scene. And his explanation for why he called for backup was that he had dealt with Mr. Doyrin before on two occasions, um, or sorry, numerous occasions. And on one of those occasions, he had assaulted a colleague and at the cells, and the police felt it was necessary, I can't comment on whether it was or was not, to taser him in the course of getting him to stop this assault. All right. So it sounds like a pretty good reason to call for backup. So he called for backup because he thought, I need other officers present in case this guy goes off the rails. But he asks him to step out of his vehicle before he calls for backup? I mean, I would imagine that he probably handcuffed him and put him in the back of the car. It's not clear from the judgment. Okay. Um, They waited a few minutes for backup to arrive. Backup gets there at uh, 4.36. He stopped at 4.32. So we're talking about four minutes. He then briefs uh, the other officers um, about what happened and makes the demand at 440. So a total delay of eight minutes to the demand, waiting for backup, briefing them on the situation, and then making the demand. This was uh, in North Vancouver? Well, North Vancouver um, was the uh, trial, and then it was um, conviction and a summary conviction appeal. Okay. And so the um, argument made was the argument you would expect. The eight minutes of delay wasn't justified. The officer, you know, could have... There's no reason to think that the ASD demand is going to trigger the guy. Could have made the demand and then called. Sure. And Constable Cataret also agreed that Mr. Doyren was cooperative and compliant during the interaction. Yes. I mean, if it was 15 years ago was the last time they needed to... Taser him. Taser him or get other officers, uh, you know. <laughs> Cataret has not been in Whistler for 15 years, so I know that it's... Uh, I know, but... And he has know. numerous occasions dealing with the guy, so it's not just one time, right? He's got a lengthy history with this person. Okay. So, in any event, the court does not find that the uh, safety concerns were unreasonable, which, I mean, how often do courts find safety concerns to be unreasonable? And the... Uh, don't find that the demand was not made immediately, that this was justifiable delay. Um, The court at paragraph 36 saying it was reasonably open to the trial judge to make findings of fact in support of conviction. The officer testified he was alive to the requirement that the demand be read immediately. Um, And he found the the officer, the officer's evidence about officer safety reasons to be uh, reasonable. And importantly, though, a little bit of a lesson for defense counsel arguing this in the future, in a similar case, the officer was not asked, that point that you just made, whether his safety concerns relating to administering the test following the demand were also the same concerns that justified waiting to make the demand. Um, There was no direct evidence on that, but the court found it didn't really matter because the inference was that the delay was justifiable because the officer came to a legitimate view that the obligation to immediately comply followed the demand so the demand should be delayed until the other officers arrived so that they had to comply immediately. See that's not how I interpret bro and that's not how I interpret the decision um, uh, what is it McCormiston or something from the McCorriston McCorriston from the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. McCorriston was a case where the officer knew nothing I know, but still, uh, you know, 
you can make the demand and the demand fulfills the 10A and 10B, you know, doesn't fulfill the 10B requirement, but it deals with the 10B violation. And you've already asked the guy to step out. That's basically the demand. All you have to do is say, just hang on here. I've got to read this to you and then we'll, we'll have a talk or something. Right. Um, and read the demand so he knows what's happening and then call for backup. And when the backup comes, do the test. Right. So you fulfill that the, the, the correction for the 10B violation as best as possible. And you're right. That should have been the line of questioning. But of course, you don't necessarily know that. And the way evidence comes out in court, lots of times you're sitting there, you know, is this going to be meaningful? Is this going to be meaningful? Something the officer said or the way that they imparted that information as it was coming across may have led counsel to not want to investigate that further, thinking that, you know, they were better off to focus on the overall delay. Yeah. So I'm not knocking somebody and you said this is an important thing, but that would have been the approach that I take reading bro. Sure. Well. B-R-E-A-U-L-T from the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. It was like Kyla and I were so connected to that decision as it went through the court from Quebec and people from Quebec were emailing us about it and we all were following it. So when that decision as I slept at night. Court of Appeal decision and then. Okay, in the Supreme Court of Canada, I love you. Please be okay. I hope you recover from this appeal. Yes, we both felt that way, and we both we wanted to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and to stand up there. And Crown would Crown would make their argument, and we'd stand up and go, "No way, man!" <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, we don't have a lot of time because I have court uh, right after we're done recording this, but uh, I did want to talk to you about the ridiculous driver of the week. The week. The week. The week. The week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Wow, we had so many ridiculous drivers last week and uh, we cleared up, you know, the decks so we're safe for uh, having some new ones mm-hmm. and this is a new one just happened this last week on saturday in uh was winnipeg in winnipeg speaking of manitoba <laughs> they're allowed on the podcast Ontario, Mani- no I, manitoba yes i had manitoba on the mind today <laughs> yeah um so this uh winnipeg man just kind of drove up onto the sidewalk while allegedly driving drunk and uh, continued driving on the sidewalk until he came to a stop right underneath the awning of the Winnipeg Police Service Headquarters. So, <laughs> yep, that's sort of packaging himself up and delivering himself. Um, but it well, sounds it like... better. It gets better, yes. Once the police come out to be like, why the heck is this car parked on the sidewalk in front of our police station? They see the guy. They ask him to get out of the vehicle. And not only does he refuse, he also brandishes a screwdriver. <laughs> We don't know whether he's, like, threatening them with it or what, but I just picture this guy being like, no, I'm not going to get out of my car, and waving a screwdriver in the air. Was it a flat screwdriver, a Robertson screwdriver, or was it... Of course, of course you would... Vodka and orange juice. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> a flat screwdriver is like a knife. 
Yeah, and Robertson Screwdriver is the true Canadian screwdriver. Yep. So they used their tactical support team to break the vehicle windows. Well, the tactical tasered. support team's right there. And then they tasered him, They're like, just like Mr. Doyle. Hey, you guys, you never get to use that tactical support equipment that's over there by your our SWAT van. Go put it on here. We get a chance to go taser somebody. Uh, and he had to, then they had to safely extract him uh, from the vehicle. Uncooperative though he was, placed him under arrest. And then he had to go to the hospital because they'd tasered him. He, um, there might've been something else going on. I don't know that it said alcohol there. It could have been a drug thing. Could have been some psychological issue. He also had an un- unendorsed warrant. So oh. you could see why maybe he didn't want the police to. But he drove himself there. Maybe he was turning himself in on the warrant. For all you know. Possibly. Could be. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's our podcast. Thanks. So if you need to get in touch with us, there's many different ways. Kyla just started typing a response to an email. So you can email us yep. uh, by going to our website at info at vancouvercriminallaw.com. You can call us at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Okay. And I'm off to court.